In part one and two of our interview with Kaiser Fung, we discussed the process behind a numerical finding, then focused on accuracy. In our last installment, Kaiser reveals one last way to cultivate number sense. Your third point is to have a nose for doctored statistics. And for me, it's like, how do you know if you don't know what you don't know, surprised to read in the school rankings chapter in number sense mm -hmm. that different publications have different rules and rankings. And then I didn't know that reporting low GPAs as not available, it's a magic trick that causes a, a median GPA to rise. And so it's, if I didn't know this, I would just use any number in any of these publications and use it in my marketing, how do I cultivate a nose for doctored statistics? Well, I, I think for a lot of people, I think it, it, it would involve reading certain authors, certain people who, who specialize in this sort of stuff. I'm one of them, but there are also others out there who who have this sort of skepticism and, and they will point out how, you know, I mean, like figuring out how other people do it and then, you know, you can do it, you can just follow the same types of logic. Um, oftentimes it involves sort of like, there, there are multiple stages to this. There's the stage of, can you smell something fishy, right? So, you know, it, it, it's sort of this awareness that, okay, do I want to believe this or not? And then there's the next stage of do you know where to look, how to look, how do you how do you investigate it? Usually when you smell something that means that you have developed an alternative uh, hypothesis or interpretation that is different from what the uh, the thing you're reading. So in sort of the scientific method, right, we what we want to do at that point is to try to go out and find corroborating evidence. So then the question becomes, do you have this notion of what, what kinds of things I could find that could help you decide whether you're right or whether the original uh, person is right? And here the distinction is really around if, you, if you're more experienced, you might be able to know if I am able to find this information that would be sufficient for me to either invalidate this or to falsify that. And so you don't necessarily need to go through the entire analysis, but you just find a mm -hmm. shortcut to get to a certain point. And then, and then the, the last state is more, it's that, that's the hardest to achieve, but, and also not always necessary, but it's sort of like, okay, if you no longer believe in what was published, the, how do you develop your alternative argument, right? So that requires a little bit more work. And, and that's the kind of thing that I try to train my students to do. So oftentimes, you know, when I set very open-ended type problems for them, you can see these people in different stages. Like there are people who don't recognize where the problems are, you know, just believe what they see. There are people mm -hmm. who recognize the problems and are able to diagnose what's wrong. Um, then there are ones that can diagnose what's wrong and then they will have, you know, whether it's usually through looking at some other data or some other data points, they can decide, um, okay, instead of 
going at making the assumptions that the the original people made, which you no longer believe, I'm going to make a different set of assumptions. So if I make this other set of assumptions, what would be the logical outcome of the analysis? I think it's something that can be trained. It's just difficult in the classroom setting, in our traditional sort of textbook lecture style, that type of stuff is very difficult to train. Something you said about being able to train ourselves, and one thing that it comes up in your books a lot is that a lot of us don't have the sense of, of variability in the data. We, we don't understand what that means or, or what it, if we were to sort of put it out on a, a, a bar chart, we don't have that picture in our mind. And one example that talk about I think on a blog post, and something as marketers we, we do a lot is is A-B testing. Mm -hmm. And so we'll look at, we'll do a comparison of, you know, changing one website slightly and then testing it and then noticing that maybe it, it does better, we think. And then when we, when we roll it out, we find out it, it really doesn't make too much of a difference. So you talk about reasons why something might not scale up in an A-B test. I think you wrote about that at, uh, for one of the blogs, I think it was Harvard Business Review. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be saying the same things <laughs> because <laughs> the, I'm not quite exactly remembering I mean, what, what, what I wrote about there, but yeah. from an A-B testing perspective, I, I think there are, lots of, well, there are lots of little things that people need to pay attention to. Um, because ultimately what you're trying to do is to come up with a, a result that is generalizable, right? So you've right. done your test in this period of time, but in reality, you would like um, this effect to hold, I mean, that you, you find anything um, over uh, the next period of time. Now, I think both in this case as well as what I just talked about before, one of the core concepts in statistics is not just understanding that there is variability, you know, whatever number is put in front of you is just a, at the moment, sort of measurement, right? It's sort of like if you measure your weight on the same scale, it's going to fluctuate morning, night, you know, different days. But, you know, you, you don't have this notion that your weight has changed. Um, but the actual measurement of the weight, even though if it's still the same weight, will be a slightly different. So, um, so that's the variability. But, but the next phase is understanding that there are sources of variability. So there are many different reasons why things are variable. And I think that's sort of what we're getting into. So in the case of A-B testing, there are many different reasons why your result doesn't generalize. One very obvious example is that what we call, the, we say that there's a drift in population, meaning that, you know, especially with websites, your site changes all the time. So, you know, even if you keep it stable during the test, when you roll it forward, it may have changed. And, you know, just a small change to certain parts of the website could actually have a very large change in the types of people that, you know, that, that, that comes to the page. So, you know, I, I've done, in the past, I've done a lot of A-B testing around kind of what you call the conversion funnel in marketing. And, you know, this is particularly an issue if you, let's say you're testing on a page that is close to the end of the funnel. Now, 
people do that because that's the most impactful place because the conversion rates are much higher in those pages. Um, but the problem is because it's at the end of many steps, you know, anything that changed in any of the prior steps is going to potentially change the, the types of people who ended up on your conversion page. So, you know, that's one reason why you know, after you know, there's variability in the types of people coming to your page, then even if the result worked during the test, it's not going to work okay. um, yeah. later. But I mean, there, there, there's, there's plenty of other, there's plenty of other things, including something that people oftentimes fail to recognize, which is the whole basis of A/B testing is you are randomly placing people into uh, two or more buckets, and the randomization is supposed to, on average, tell you that they are comparable and the same. But, you know, random while will get you there almost all of the time, but, you know, you can throw a coin ten times and get ten heads. There's a possibility that there is something odd about that case. So another problem is what if your particular test had this weird phenomenon? Now, in statistics, we account for that by putting error bars around these things, but it still doesn't solve the problem that that particular sample was a very odd sample. So, so the one of the underlying assumptions of all the analysis in statistics is that you're not analyzing that rare sample. That rare sample is kind of treated as part of the the outside of normal situation. Right. So, so there, yeah, so there's a lot of subtlety in how you would actually interpret these things. And so, you know, A-B testing is still one of the best ways of measuring something, but even there, there are lots of things that you can't tell. I mean, I also wrote about the fact that sometimes it doesn't tell you, I mean, we like to say A-B testing gives you a cause-effect analysis. Yeah. Um, it all depends on what you mean by cause-effect, because even the most, for a typical example, like the red button and the green button, Yes. It's not caused by the color. <laughs> right? It's like the color change did not cause anything. So, you know, there, there are some more intricate mechanisms there uh, that, that if you really want to talk about cause, um, yeah. you wouldn't say color is the cause. Although in, in a particular way of interpreting this, you can say that the color is the cause. Mm -hmm. right. It really just sounds like at every point you have to ask yourself, is this accurate? Is this the truth? It's a lot more work to get to the truth of the matter. Yes, so I think when people sell you the notion that somehow because of the volume of the data, everything becomes easy, I think it's the opposite. I think that's one of the, the, one of the key points of the book. When you have more data, it actually requires a lot more work. Um, and and, and uh, going back to the earlier point, which is that when you have more data, the the amount of potentially wrong analysis or coming to the wrong conclusions is exponentially larger, and and a lot of it is because of the fact that most analysis, especially with data that is not experimental, it's not randomized, uh, not controlled, you 
essentially rely on a lot of assumptions. And when you rely on a lot of assumptions, it's the proverbial thing about you can basically say whatever you want <laughs> with this data. And so, so that's why I think it's really important for, for those people who are not actually in the business of generating analysis. If you're in the business of consuming analysis, you really have to look out for yourself because you really could, in this day and age, could say whatever you want with the data that you have. So be a skeptic. Be paranoid. <laughs> well, the, the, the nice thing is like when they're only talking about the colors of your bicycles and so on, you can probably just ignore and not do the work because it's not really that, that important to the problem. But on the other hand, when you, um, you know, in the other case that is ongoing, which is the, the whole Tesla autopilot algorithm thing, right? Like in those cases, then also when people are now getting into healthcare and all these other things where your your potential is a life and death decision, then you really should just pay more attention. This is great. Do you have any final thought in terms of number sense? This is a preview of blog post that I'm going to put out probably this week. And, you know, I don't know if it, it works for you guys because this could be a bit more involved. But, but so here's the situation. So, I mean, again, it basically... It reinforces the point that you can easily get fooled by the data. My uh, TA and I were reviewing a data set that one of our students is using for her class project. And this was basically some data about, you know, the revenue contributions of various customers and some characteristics of the customers. So we were basically trying to solve the problem of um, is there a way to use these characteristics to explain why re the revenues, revenue contributions for different customers have gone up or down? So we spent a bit of time thinking about it, and we eventually come up with a nice way of doing it. It's not an obvious problem, so we, we have a nice way of doing it. We thought it actually produced pretty nice results. So then we met with the student, and pretty much the first thing that we learned from this conversation is that, oh, um, because this is proprietary data, all the revenue numbers were completely made up, like <laughs> some thing, formula, or whatever, that she used <laughs> to generate the numbers. <laughs> so that's sort of the interesting sort of dynamic there, because on the one hand, like, obviously, all of the work that we spent kind of just in creating this model, and, and then the reason why we like the model is that it creates a nicely interpretable result, like it actually makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. But it turns out that, yes, it makes sense in that imaginary world, but it really doesn't <laughs> have any impact on, on reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and then the other thing, the other side of this, which I kind of touch upon in, in my book too, is well, if you were to just look at the methodology of what we did and the model that we built, and you would, would say we have really good work, <laughs> like, you know, because we applied the good methodology, it generated good results. So, so, uh, so the, the method is, and the data and, and your assumptions, I mean, all these things play a role in this, in this ecosystem. And, and and I think that um, so going back to what I was saying today, uh, I mean, uh, it's the uh, well we have all this data, 
I, I think not the, we have not spent sufficient time to really think about what are the sources of the data, how believable is this data, and in this day and age, especially with marketing data, with online data and all that, like there's a lot of manipulation going on. There are lots of people who are creating this data for a purpose. Think about yeah. online reviews and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And on, on the analysis side, we have really not faced up to the, this issue. We just basically take the data and we just analyze and we come up with models and we, we say things. But how much of any of those things could, would be refuted if we actually knew how the data was created? That's a really good takeaway. You are working on many things, it sounds like. Um, you have, you're working on a blog, you teach. What else are you working on these days? Well, I'm mainly working on uh, various educational activities that are hoping to train the next generation of analysts and mm-hmm. people working with data that would hopefully have the, the number sense that I want to talk about. I have various book projects in mind, which I hope to get to when I have mm-hmm. more time. From the number sense perspective, I'm interested in exploring ways to uh, describe this in a more concrete way. Right. So, you know, there's this notion of, I mean, this is this general ecosystem of things that I've talked about, but I want to systematize it a bit. And so I've, I have an effort ongoing to try to make it more quantifiable. And so if people want to follow what you're doing, uh, what is your Twitter handle on your website? My Twitter is junkchop, and that's probably where most of my, like in terms of updates, that's where things go. I have a personal website called kaiserfilm.com where they can learn more about what I do. And then I, I try to update my speaking schedule there because I, I do travel around the country, speak at various events, and mm-hmm. then they will also read about uh, other things that I do like for corporations that are mostly around uh, training managers, training people in this area of Um, statistical reasoning, data visualization, number sense, and all that. 